0: today. I am with Dr. Alexander Cummins, but I just call him Dr. Al. And I actually learned about him because I was looking up Geomancy. And you guys know that Geomancy is my favorite system of divination. And his name definitely kept on coming up again and again and again. Looked on his website and he does Geomancy. He does tarot readings. He does sorcery, like professional sorcery. And I was like, "Wait a second, he's Doctor Al. Why is he Doctor Al?" It turns out that he is literally uh, somebody who knows Hogwarts-level magic. He has a degree, like, uh, like I'll let him explain exactly what his degree is in, but he knows magic, like, not just from a practical point of view, but also from an academic point of view. And he gives talks and he gives classes to sort of spread his knowledge of the magics that he knows, both the academic and the practical. So I am super excited to have Dr. Al with me. Hi, Dr. Al.
1: Hello. Thank you so much for having me. That was a a lovely introduction.
0: What exactly did you study in school and where did you learn this stuff?
1: Well, my doctorate uh, was at the University of Bristol, which was under the very kind and expert tutelage of Professor Ronald Hutton who some of your viewers might be familiar with, having written Triumph of the Moon, which was one of the first studies of Wicca and Pagan witchcraft. So I was very lucky to get to study with him. Uh, Previous to to that, I was at the University of Leeds. I did my undergrad and my master's by research there. And I've always been a a good history boy. Uh, They'll let you study pretty much whatever you can prove there's something to study on, uh, as long as it's dead people. So it wasn't so much of a, a trouble, to get to study the history of magic, which is what I did, and specifically I looked at early modern uh, British, uh, with some European parallels, uh, magicians and magic and and what they were up to. So my Masters by Research was about uh, astrological magic and its political, environmental and social functions. Well, I was lucky in the sense of looking at the 17th century, and partly what uh, appealed to me, uh, and still appeals to me about the 17th century, is that a lot of stuff is being printed in English, there is a, a kind of print explosion. Uh, between 1640 and 1660, the printing press restrictions are pretty much lifted. Prior to that, you really needed to get approval from someone from the king's court or possibly someone from a bishop's uh, kind of retinue to read or at least have said they've read and approve uh, your book for publication. And, and in between these this kind of golden 20 years of, uh, of the fermenting revolution and so on, uh, the printing press restrictions are almost entirely lifted and people publish all sorts of things said so, that the English learned to read uh, from almanacs of this period, and lots of continental uh, visitors were were horrified that people weren't reading the Bible as much as they were reading their astrology and their alchemy and their their magics, uh, which is, um, you know, kind of a, a, a nice endorsement when we look back at it now. So I was looking at a lot of English sources and a lot of English print sources, and especially when English authors want to talk about something a bit rude, or a bit sensitive, they'll they'll skip into Latin, which is basically where you, where you know that they're going to start talking uh, about um, you know venereal diseases or you know how to how to seduce a lady or any number of other things that you know wouldn't be considered proper to have written in in the vulgar English. So there was a there was a bunch of that.
0: Yeah. Well, that sounds kind of fun. So when it became the arcane language, you were just like, yes, the juicy bits. <laughs> One of the things that I found really interesting about the history of magic is that for a long time, things that we now consider to be floofy, not even pseudoscience, but just like new age, woo stuff, it was studied at the university level back in the day. From what I've read, geomancy, astrology, all these things were considered a science, much like mathematics and law is considered things that you study at higher level university. And I was shocked to learn that astrology in particular has six thousand plus years of data points because it has a long extensive history. And not only that, people used astrology in practical ways at the king's courts. If they were wrong, their heads were chopped off. So it was in their best interest to be as accurate as possible. And so, in a lot of ways, these things they have a very solid I would say data-driven background, and we kind of forget about a lot of that. Um, You mentioned that you did some research about astrological magic, and you have a class on astrological magic. What is that exactly?
1: (laughs) So I think you're entirely fair in terms of looking at what we would perhaps now consider to be not so scientific. First one is empiricism, the idea that you can test something and see the results, and do it again, and test it again, and that the, the uh, taking into account the limitations of your instrumentation, you're able to move forward. Now, there's a great deal of argument to say that that scientific methodology emerges from the experiments and the experiences of magicians. Uh, I can give you one concrete example, which is pretty late in the in the timeline of it, which is from uh, the. 1560s. There's uh, a couple of magicians by the name of Humphrey Gilbert and John Davies. They were summoning spirits, asking them to teach these two men uh, about the the, the occult nature of the cosmos. And if they didn't understand it, they would summon the spirit back and say, I don't understand you. Bring me another text. Teach me some more stuff about how this works. And the historian Frank Clarsen has pointed out that this has... One foot in the what he calls the old dirty ritual magic of the medieval period, and I don't think he means to make the Wu Tang reference there, but I like to think he does. Yeah, baby, I like uh, and another foot in the emergent scientific methodology, right? The idea of doing a thing, measuring the results in some way as best you can, or at least reporting on the results, doing it again, and seeing how this kind of stuff plays out. These kinds of things were being practiced as much by magicians as they were by uh, you know people that, that decried magic and in fact, in a sort of parallel way you know we talk about what's woo and what isn't now, if you think about how many scientists there are who are you know firm uh, proponents of exposing uh, fake magicians uh, you know TV psychics and that kind of stuff that they consider exploiting people. Magicians did much the same thing in the ancient and medieval world with overly uh, superstitious peoples. So they were going around saying magic's real and important, but all of this nonsense about needing to, you know, turn around eight times every time you see a black cat, that's, that's not real magic, right? In the same way that a bunch of scientists now argue about what's real science and what isn't. So to return to the, the actual question at the end there, astrological magic is a particular kind of magic revolving around the use of the influence of the stars. Now, there's a couple of things there. For a start, since at least Ptolemy, we've understood a distinction between the measurement of astronomy and the meaning and interpretation of astrology. Right? Now, these might be done by the same peoples, but they might also not be. It might be considered perfectly acceptable in you know 13th century Baghdad to farm your ephemerides out to do, for, for your measurements of where the stars are to be done by someone else. But once you have that data, then you can start analysing, interpreting, applying, predicting these kinds of things. And as you say, astrological magicians, like astrologers, who often weren't you know, opposed to each other, often the same people, were employed in a variety of uh, levels and classes of, of various societies. from. Courtly uh, magi such as Doctor John Dee, who amongst other things set the coronation dates of Elizabeth the First, but astrologer uh, magicians were also, you know, plugging their wares, doing their interpretations, and crucially providing remediation for those divinations they did. So it wasn't just a case of doing the, of flipping the tarot cards and being like, "There's the Tower, good luck with that." Right? They were also saying, "Okay, you have these up, you have this upcoming." Difficult uh, transit or, or conjunction that's going to affect your life, and here's uh, an amulet that, I, that that might be prescribed to to help with that influence, or here are a set of rituals that you might be um, encouraged to do, or even down to very much about health and well-being and not about magic, like um, what kind of food you're eating, uh, how much exercise you're getting, how much sleep you're getting, and the reason for this is that the stars were thought to influence us via our humoral disposition, and I don't mean how good a sense of humor we have, I mean uh, the basis of Western medicine for a very long time, there's a whole bunch of ideas that get called humoral theory or Galenism after the, the Greek dude Galen, which are about the proper balance of these four humors in the body that correlate to the four classical elements of fire, air, water and earth. Being ways in which the stars can influence us. So, so we're familiar perhaps with sun sign astrology, where we might say, "Oh, you're a, you're an Aries. That's a fire sign, and you can be characterised by being fiery in some way." So, the theory was that uh, astrology and the, and the working practices that astrology partly affects us through our humours, through the balance of the four of the four humours, which correlate to the four elements in our bodies, and so. For instance, if Mars is doing something particularly adverse uh, in, in your chart or that your chart demonstrates this particular bad relationship with where the stars currently are, then you might be encouraged to do something to either ennoble Mars via the sun, maybe another fire, fiery planet that could be helpful for remediating that, that influence or cooling you down uh, after being, you know, getting potentially you know, influenced to be too fiery. And so humoral theory underlies an awful lot of not just medicine and and well-being but also magic also the constitution of situations a situation could be too fiery could be too spicy and you need to cool it down in some ways and so you might you know forge uh, an astrological amulet dedicated or or gathering the virtues of a water sign like uh, like cancer or Pisces right to to help like cool down a situation and so for me, one of the fascinating things about astrological magic is that it's not just about predicting what's going to happen, or even ensuring that what is predicted does end up happening, but that you are rebalancing situations constantly. Astrological magic combines this kind of the manipulation of occult virtue, which is kind of at the core of a lot of um, Western models of, of occult philosophy and magical practice, and that it's done in specific timing, and also. You know, once you start getting into the astrology of things, particular places, wearing particular colors, you know, uh, speaking in a particular manner, all these kinds of things.
0: What you're suggesting is that for a long time, people were using astrology not just to see what was going to happen, which is quite fatalistic, like, oh, it's just going to happen and that's it. But it's saying this is most likely to happen. But if you don't want it to happen, or if you want to slightly change the course, here's some things that you can actually do about it. Is that what you teach in your class?
1: Yeah, in in, in parts, sure. I mean I've done a a couple classes now. I did a a series called The Fundamentals of Astrological Magic that looked at sigils. And when we say sigils, um, many modern people might uh, think that I'm automatically talking about chaos magic. Uh, We get the term for, you know, um, and I mean this in the most respectful way, magic squiggles that we make of ourselves. Uh, from Austin Spare, Austin Osman Spare, uh, and, and a couple of other people. The, originally, the term meant uh, specific markings, particular glyphs that would reflect and contain the occult ability for planets or astrological signs uh, or or various other astrological bodies to, to do something in the world. So, I, I teach about um, the use of sigils and magical objects, which is to say, Catching the influence of the stars in um, in a suitable container. I'm not the first person to make the comparison to making jam, right? Uh, there are early modern occult philosophers like Gian Battista della Porta, who writes The, the Natural Magic. Uh, there are historians of magic like Keith Thomas that have also made this comparison. And there are even magicians like uh, Peter Gray of Scarlet Imprint who've also made this kind of comparison. That making an astrologically magical object is a tiny bit like making jam, in the sense that fruit doesn't necessarily grow all year, right? It has a particular season where it fruits, where the tree fruits, uh, the fruit is ready, the fruit falls down, and eventually, if you leave it on the ground, the fruit, you know, ferments and rots. And some animals leave it to ferment so they can, you know, get drunk from it. Um, that's 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 not necessarily part of our analogy here, but that's a nice little thing to point out that animals sometimes get drunk. The idea is that you are treating that particular conjunction or that particular astrological event like the fruit of the heavens, that it's falling from the stars and it's ready to be preserved uh, with with suitable agents of of preservation, you know, a nice clean jar, you know, suitable sugars and and, and things like that. And so what you're doing is you're catching that particular uh, starry influence and you're bottling it and you're keeping it preserved so it's ready so that you can enjoy that particular influence even when the stars aren't doing that thing that you've caught some of its power you could also think about it like um putting a save point in the in the heavens right that you're able to return to that point in some way and say all right the that perfect you know uh sun venus uh, uh conjunction was um was months ago but i have something from then that i exposed to it that was you know made of copper with, with with gold paint on it and a variety of other things that have um, virtues that resonate with Venus and Sun in this example. And so you're able to store that influence. So that's a very broad brushstrokes, very thumbnail take on, on astrological sigils and magical objects. So I teach about that. I teach about ritual, um, planetary ritual specifically. So that's things like talking about not just that oh, you know, uh, if you're going to do a, a ritual with the sun on a Sunday, for a star it should be on a Sunday, and everything should be gold and done in sixes and various other things that plot to the correspondences that some you know Western magicians will probably be very familiar with. Um, it's also looking at why those, those connections, why is it that um, Jupiter things are considered blue, or what's going on when we use a blue thing and the short answer is that what we're doing is we're reminding things that they're magic. I think that's the easiest way of putting it. So Agrippa gives this example, that's um, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, he's a very important Renaissance uh, philosopher. He, he writes the three books of occult philosophy, which are um, very important for as an encyclopedia. They gather together all of the, the Greco-Roman stuff and a bunch of other bits of magic uh, from uh, his studies. And they also demonstrate uh, a certain amount of experimentation with the christianization of of Jewish Kabbalah. Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, super cool dude, like your cool magic uncle, Uh, and uncle Heinrich says, why is it when we're doing solar ritual, he's kind of being uh, rhetorical here, he's like, why when we're doing solar ritual do we need to gather things that are yellow, um, things that um, are like the sun, are considered like sunny or like bright, or cheerful or more serious, or about rulership, or about the heart, or about kingship. Why do we need to gather these things together? Why do we need sunflowers on the table to make this offering or to do this spell when they already are considered to have that solar virtue in them? That's why they're they're yellow in part. The morphology is explained because they have some sun in them. That the planets are these kinds of um, seven filters. So if sunflowers are already yellow and already called sunflowers and already have this kind of solar thing in them, why do we need to do ritual? And his answer is that it's like holding in, uh, a paper with invisible ink over a flame, that the ritual done at the right time with the right words, with the right intention is like the other example he gives is bruising up mustard seeds. You know, that you have to bruise them up to stir the, the flavor of them. The flavor's there. But you have to do something to kind of like remind it that it's there. And that's kind of what he says ritual is for, in part. That's kind of what I, I teach in uh, in the, the second class on, 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 on ritual, uh, planetary ritual specifically. And, and that's also practical things like the manner in which we speak. You know, Mars responds far better to a clear authoritative command than it does and the spirits of Mars, I should say than it does to, you know, attempting to wheedle with it or to, you know, make friends with it or to speak softly. Uh, the moon, much, you know, lunar spirits are much, are they respond much more favourably to a kind of dreamy sort of prosody um, and, and this kind of thing. So teaching some practical skills and stuff. And also going through things like the Picatrix, an 11th century Arabic astrological manual that, um, amongst other things, encourages a sort of ritual cosplay. It says if you're going to do martial ritual you should dress up like a soldier and you should have a sword and uh you know if you're going to do mercurial ritual you should dress up like a school teacher and you should sit in a chair like school teachers do and you should pretend to have a piece of paper like like scribes do and you should you should play the part right again about encouraging these spirits of these planets to treat you as one of their own and thus to to let you in right in this kind of way. So I teach that. And then the, th- the third module of the, the fundamentals is on um, spirits and astrological spirits, as I've already been talking about.
0: Uh, and I think
1: one of the important things that I like to emphasize is that we we often think about a a spirit model, the idea of, a, of animism that, that I know you, you talk about a lot on your show, uh, and I, and I, I really uh, think that's uh, fantastic and support that. Um, we sometimes have this notion that you can either have a spirit model where, you, where you, you think there are spirits, you know, helping you do your magic, or you can have a psychological model where you think it's all in your head. And coming from an early modern background, I think a lot of our early modern predecessors would find that strange to distinguish between the two. Um, psychology and psychiatry are both, I think, 15th century French terms. They're not, it's not anachronistic to talk about uh, spirits and psychology in the same breath. And certainly when you're a diviner uh, and you're, you're attempting to help someone fix a particular problem, you know, it's worth trying, it, 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 it's very important to know whether or not someone is haunted or they're under cross conditions because they've, you know, annoyed some senior spirits or if, uh, you know, there's fairies at work or, or witches or, you know, you've, 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 you've crossed someone on the internet and they've, they've thrown a, a curse at you or if it's some kind of um, physical Uh, problem you're having or if it's some kind of cognitive issue or a mental health issue or uh, which is itself an incredibly broad category or if it's a spiritual matter or any combination of those factors and this is exactly what the astrological magicians uh, who who were also doctors and physicians and the geomancers who were also physicians, doctors and clergymen in the early modern period were dealing with as well. Uh, One uh, doctor in the 17th century, Richard Napier, who was regarded as a particular expert in what we now call mental health issues. He actually had a very close relationship with the archangel Raphael, who he would regularly summon to do kind of consults with, where if he wasn't sure if the patient, you know, was um, kind of having a, like a, uh, you know, some kind of psychotic episode or if, you know, fairies really were turning up and dancing around them or if the fairies were causing the psychotic episode, right? Any of these things are possible. Um, And so if he wasn't sure, he would invocate, as the term goes, the archangel Raphael, and call him up and and ask what he thought. Which is appropriate, given that Raphael uh, is sometimes translated as God has healed, or his name is also translated as the medicine of God.
0: I think most people, when they think about magic, they always think that it's so complicated and it's so out there and it's not for super practical use. But again, you're describing magic as jam. And it's filters. I'm thinking almost like Instagram filters. You know, when you take a picture, you want it to look a little bit more pink. You, like, go to that one particular one that you, like, really like. That makes your skin look really Mm -hmm. good. Or if you want to look a little Mm -hmm. bit more, like, moody and dramatic, you, like, go to that other filter that shows the shadows (laughs) a little bit more. So I really love that. I mean, there's so many parallels to just modern life. And that's one of the things that kind of put me off of magic for a while. I was like okay like back in the day when they didn't know science maybe magic could have given some answers but now how does a modern person incorporate that and that's also one of the reasons why i really love geomancy like astrology it's very up there it's celestial it's wonderful i absolutely adore astrology but then geomancy which is often called the sister of astrology right it it seems a little bit more grounded and if you need a little bit more of that Should I go out with this guy? Yes or no? It's really good for (laughs) that. Tell me a little bit more about how you got into geomancy.
1: The system uh, we're talking about uh, develops from um, Arabic sources and probably, possibly, uh, Greco-Roman sources before that. Mm -hmm. Uh, The anthropologists are are very tentative about that kind of thing as a historian. I got into it partly through seeing it academically, and and studying it in the course of of doing my my studies, but also in terms of looking for a divination system that could pare down simply, and that didn't require me to explain an awful lot of, um, let's say, Hermetic Kabbalah, for instance. I read tarot for a very long time, and uh, I I was also an itinerant sort of uh, professional uh, poet, and... um, uh, an MC on a on the the uk festival circuit for a while and um it's great to be able to read tarot for people you know professionally and to help them with practical problems which is really what excites me about about divination um but you know when you're having to explain oh yeah this hebrew word is also this thing and it's a name of god and someone's like i just want to know if i should go to this festival or this festival uh, or you know, or if um, or if or if he likes me or not, you know, I don't need to learn Hebrew for that. And I liked how practical when I started using geomancy, it was how definite it was, how grounded, as you say, how worldly, and also how elemental it was. And as I trained more in my my doctorate, it was specifically about magical approaches to the passions, and I'm very interested in emotional intelligence and emotional well-being, and One of the things that's great about geomancy being so elemental, right? It's uh, if if, if some of your your listeners aren't familiar, it's four line figures in the same way that the Yi-Ching is six line figures, hexagrams, right? So each of those lines is elemental. Um, There are 16 answer figures, and so they're broken down into these sets of elemental four. So you can talk about a figure being fiery or earthy in the same way we talk about elemental triplicities of the zodiac. Uh, like we were talking about earlier. Uh, then on top of that, the the chart that one does has a whole group of places. So the first four uh, places, like we would do in a tarot spread, are considered um, to excite the fiery nature of whatever figures are there. And then each individual place of the 15 or 16 different places in a chart also has a uh, an elemental identity. So if you were looking at something in the fourth house, not only is that considered earthy because they they go fire, air, water, earth, so the fourth place is going to be earthy, it's also part of that whole set of the chart referred to as the mother figures, which are all kind of fiery, so you would look at whatever figure turned up there, which itself had an elemental identity and was made up of individual points of elemental um, openness or closeness or activity and passivity or expansion and contraction, however we to talk about this, the single points and the double points of a geomantic line in, in, in its figure. There's a wealth of elemental information there. Once you have elements, you have humours, and you're able to talk about uh, what particular emotional expressions and experience might be more likely to occur in that characterization of that aspect of their life, right? So you're able to be a lot more specific about how to balance things out as well. You're able to offer a lot more in terms of what strengths someone can play to, what um, blind spots they might have, what they need to secure, what they need to remedy, what they need to stay away from. These kinds of things lend themselves far more easily to practicable and workable um, stuff that they can do about whatever the reading is. There's a tendency, even within early modern magic, right, to distinguish between uh, a very authoritarian idea that, Inferiors always obey superiors and that kings should always be followed and lords should always be listened to just as uh, the planets always predict accurately and tell everyone what to do. As opposed to what one uh, historian Patrick Curry has called a democratic astrology uh, characterized by famous 17th century astrologers like William Milley. As, um, he had a saying, he, he was famous, for. he had said that the stars incline but do not compel. Right. There's tendencies here, but there's no guarantees. Right. There's no there's and there's certainly no giving up your responsibility to make decisions for yourself.
0: One of the things that helped me with magic was seeing it less as like a miracle worker and more as a probability pusher. <laughs> so I know a lot of people, including some close friends of mine, they're really afraid to get their cards read and their chart read because they don't want to see bullshit that's going to come up. And I'm just like, well, if it is, don't you want to know so that you can be like, okay, if there's an accident on this highway, you can take the back road around it. Just because there's an accident doesn't mean you have to go through it. Yeah. So, yeah. So when I think about magic, I think of it actually as exactly that, like a GPS system. And uh, a weather report, a weather forecast. Sometimes the weatherman is not 100% right, but the chances—70% chance, 60% chance—bring an umbrella.
1: Right, 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 right. A lot of diviners in in cultures outside of you know the Anglo-Sphere or the the quote-unquote West um, are very fond of talking about how what they do is look at patterns and have a history of knowing how that pattern plays out. And so, you know, some of them even argue that this is pretty empirical. You know, what we're doing is working out, you know, when, you know, a particular set of principles about the way the world ends up shaking out sometimes, uh, one-sixteenth of the possible answers that it could, which could be represented by a geomantic figure, when it meets some other influence, some other factor, right, they they synthesize and they produce a, a result.
0: So, our friend Sam Block, who I've talked to previously, and from those first four figures you got the next four figures. Daughters, yes. And you see how each figure has four rows. Fire, Air, Water, and Earth. Network. And uh, he has like a Facebook group, the Geomantic Study Group. And Mm. that group is such an amazing resource for people who are just starting to study geomancy. And when I first started, I was like, yay, 16 figures. This will be a piece of cake, right? Tarot, it's like so many cards, reversals. No time for that. I know, exactly, exactly. I'm laughing at what I was thinking previously. It turns out 16 figures, yes, but there's also an art to interpreting the figures and so it's not just like you can just Google up the figures and be like, oh, this one means, I don't know, like things are going to be happy. This one means that you're going to get into a lot of arguments. Sam Block, he definitely pointed out that for a while, geomancy was looked down upon because people treated it like it was just lookup charts. That's not what it is. And therefore, it's important to learn the basics and the fundamentals, like what you're going to teach in your class.
1: Sure, yeah. I have, um, I have uh, what I'm calling class bundles, which are like, they're, they're, they're kind of like if you couldn't make it to a, a gig, but you wanted to see me talk for two hours at your own convenience in your computer and then have all of the texts that I mention in the talk uh, at hand to be able to read through yourself and then have recommendations for further reading. That's, uh, that's kind of what a class bundle is. So I've done one called Rediscovering Geomancy, which is kind of my evangelizing for, for the divination system and saying, look, in two hours, roughly, I can take you from not knowing how to do it to knowing at least how to start to practice it. And so generally we we'll go over the 16 figures and how to set uh, a, a shield. There's a couple of little, I wouldn't even say advanced techniques, you know, intermediary techniques like uh, reading the way of the points, which is one of the ways that we can look at a chart. The way of the points, for instance, is a nice way of, of working out what are the underlying factors here? that may manifest in areas of your life not directly applicable to what you think the solution would be. So the classic example is um, you ask about uh, your career, which is a 10th house matter, but the way of the points, and you ask about uh, how can I advance in my career, uh, but the way of the points might um, flow to uh, the 7th house and might say, have you talked to your husband about someone he knows in a in a, in a, in a, in a rival company, for instance, you know, that the way of the points says the underlying root of the solution of this problem would be to speak to the seventh house being, you know, one's partner. That could be a business partner. That could be a spouse. Um, it could be, a, you know, uh, an LTR. Uh, these are the, the kind of things that it can point at. It gives you this kind of overview with the details that you can swim in on as well. That's one of the, the many reasons I, I, I like it. I'm also about to start my uh, training course, which is the, the Geomancy Foundation course, through those fine, fine chaps at uh, Wolf and Goat, which is eight hours, I think, of, of webinar training uh, going really in-depth on the figures and also on the the courts, which are the way, which are the bottom of the of a, a geomantic shield chart, so-called, because it's shapes, were very practical. Um, so they, they, it's called the court, it has two witnesses and a judge, and the judge is your final judgment on the answer, and the two witnesses are the uh, are that which testifies to how you get that result. And um, so there are 128 different court combinations uh, from these 16 figures. When you hear that there's a figure in Geomancy called the greater fortune, you're like, yeah, I want some greater fortune, that sounds wonderful, right? Not all the courts that end in a judge of the greater fortune, a fortuna major, are particularly great for all kinds of questions, right? If you're asking a question about teamwork, about collaboration, the greater fortune is like, I can do everything myself. I'm going to build up through my own effort, and I'm not going to ask anyone for any help, right? That it's, it's not a great figure for collaboration necessarily. And there's other examples as well where it's probably fairer to translate it as the best fortune as in this is the best this is this is the least dark timeline right um and so knowing when the figures sound good but actually might reflect something a bit more complicated is is hopefully really useful and so the training course is about putting people uh onto a firmer foundation to be able to um understand more and also it's a chance to to get to know people in the Uh, you know, who are practicing a bit more, and to have people to share, um, you know, uh, difficult charts and things, as is, you know, Sam's Geomancy Group, the the Geomantic Study Group, on the Facebooks.
0: I have actually had a shield chart uh, read by you, and I don't mind at all talking about it, because it's not just that you did the shield chart, it was also you said, okay, this is what you can do to influence the chart to the way that you want it. So guys, it's not just like, here's the result, you know, happy birthday and that's it. You can actually take it and be like, if I, don't want, if I don't want it, if I don't like it, I can definitely influence it. So the question was about whether or not I would get into a school and whether or not I would get funding. It was very interesting because you did this reading, of, we're, we're in different countries and we did it over Skype. And you did it right then and there. So when a client comes to you, like, how do you start?
1: Well, typically, I'll you know, I ask them what their experience with divination is. I'll ask them if they've had a geomantic reading, and I've I've got down pretty pat now. You know how to introduce the concept as they're coming up uh, of, of what's necessary to know. Usually, we'll back back and forth the kind of exact question. We'll get down exactly the the phrasing, which is very important in geomancy. You know, there's a difference between if you ask I continue being will this illness continue that's a that's looked at in a completely different way from will I recover from this illness Mm -hmm. right one of them looks at the nature of the illness one of them looks at the nature of your health which are obviously related but the figure that came up in that place in the chart might reflect something entirely different Mm -hmm. I would say an exact phrasing is more important than getting roughly the right sort of question right? It's better to phrase exactly not quite the question you wanted than, um, than, than, than roughly ballpark the kind of thing you want to know. Because that's that way lies equivocation and saying, well, if we look at it like this, then that's actually definitely good. Uh, or, or, or if we look at it like this, it's definitely bad. It's a way of um, encouraging a, a variety of confirmation biases. And so, Ideally, you work out the best way to ask the question, and uh, I think that's really important. I think it's my job to work out the way to, or help someone work out the best way to ask their question. So we'll phrase the question, then once we're happy with that, I'll explain roughly, you know, this is the, this is the house we're going to look at. So you know, if it's question about uh, education, we're going to look to the ninth house. If we're going to look at um, funding, we're going to look at the, the second house as well. Um, as the simplest way, there are other ways of doing funding. Um, especially academic funding, but for the purposes of that one, we decided to keep it pretty simple and just look to the second as well. Then before we actually start, we'll do a series of prayers, which is a prayer to of Earth Elementals. And crucially, it is of Elementals, not to Elementals. The notion is that we are, t- it's like turning up to church and praying with them, right? So you worship the same forces and the same things that Earth Elementals think are important literally praying with elementals so that they can help us. Again, it's a kind of spirit work. It's also a way of just centering the client and ensuring that we're about to enter a ritual kind of space and time. So we'll do a bunch of, uh, uh, a bunch of prayers. We'll do a prayer for success, which I consider the kind of Swiss army knife of prayers. You know, please let this work is a, a pretty, you know, if you've got, if you know complicated spirit names for, for, for that basic prayer of like, I hope this thing I'm about to do works, then um, I think you're, yeah, you're, you're well set. Uh, as, a, as a composite. If you, you know, if you only learn a couple prayers, that should probably be one. We do that and then I usually get the client to um, generate the first figure in some way. So as you've, you've talked about before, Geomancy has a number of ways of um, generating its data sets, of generating its answers, and that can be anything from um, praying really, really hard and making, uh, making marks in sand. Which is the, the the old school way of doing it, to having a piece of paper and a quill pen and doing the same on a piece of paper, and then you would count up whether the dots on each line. Or you can roll a dice or flip a coin. There are only four figures that are generated by random numbers in geomancy: the the four mother figures, as you know, as you and Sam have gone over before. Uh, but the first figure, particularly, is said to reflect the life and current situation and perspectives of the client, of the querent, right? The person asking the question. That's you if you're divining for yourself, that's the client if you're divining for someone else. And I personally don't like the idea that someone would think that I was pigeonholing them in some way, you know? Um, It is my job to exercise discernment, but I think it's very important that it comes from their hands, right? That they're the ones doing that. And that's also important because crucially, there are one or two figures, and Geomancers disagree with about this, but there are one or two figures that if they come up as the first figure, that you're meant to um, not complete that, reading, that you're meant to abandon that reading, that this is, this is not a fruitful line of inquiry at this time, right? Uh, the one figure that I do that for is Rubius. Then we'll talk about the Query and inquisitive, the night house, right, that education stuff, and the second for the funding, because um, it was also related to your own funds, right, crucially. Uh, And then, because the eighth house might also be appropriate there for other people's money. And then we'll also maybe go through the way the points, if that's present. We'll also talk about the part of fortune, which is um, a way of calculating a further house and figure, therefore, that is of benefit to you financially. And we'll also usually calculate the index, which Sam calls the part of spirit, which I like as a term, uh, which will give you uh, a sense of the what to focus on spiritual? that's useful for this chat. And it might be that that comes up with the same house that you're already looking at, but it might look at something different. It might say, you know, um, if the index is in the fourth house, very often I'll recommend that clients make some kind of offering or do some kind of ritual for the spirits of the land that they're in at the moment or or, or of their home. That index uh, coming up in the fourth might be present in a reading that had nothing to do with that. You know, how can I get rid of my terrible boss, you know? Um, but if the index is there at the fourth, then like you should also be doing things on the land that you that you live on. So that's that's usually the process, and we'll we'll talk that through. And then I'll prescribe or recommend particular bits of ritual that can be as simple as saying planetary prayers. Uh, it might be things like taking a particular kind of spiritual bath to wash off a condition or to or to empower you with something. You know, uh, it might involve candle spells. Or charm bags being made, or altar work being done. If it's if it's a big thing that needs shifting, for instance, if, if the chart is particularly bad, um, sometimes the chart is you know doesn't give many options for fixing it. It's that's that's not open. Uh, that's not a road that, that, that's going to be open. And, and there's a certain ethics around you know do you at what point do you say you just have to call it? You know you have to call the time of death on that. On that option right and at what point are you like no I can fight for this this patient they can live down you
0: know? <laughs> as dr. Al mentioned the first figure I created myself I used playing cards and the first figure was Laetitia and so we were kind of happy but then but then things kind of went downhill to be perfectly honest <clears throat> the court ended up being that the right witness was Rubius. And the left witness was the one where it's the endings, Caputrioconus. And then the judge was Amisio. So I think the way that you described it was, this configuration is sort of when you show up drunk to work and you punch your boss and you get fired. And I was like, oh, well, um, maybe the rest of the chart is better. And then we looked at the second house and that was, it was Tristitia. Not that great. Sorry. Yeah. Then it was like, oh, how about the ninth house, Carker? Not great either. <laughs> not great, but Carker
1: is an odd one. So Carker is a Saturnine figure, right? And it's very easy for us to uh, be scared of Saturn because it is kind of scary. It rules all the, the actual scary stuff, like death and endings. Uh, but it's also about. Um, limitations, about boundaries, it's ruled by Capricorn, right, so it has a certain ambition to it, but it is also the figure of, it's, it's the figure of the prison, right, but it's also the figure of the cell, so it can also be, it can be great in terms of focus, right, and I think if we're reading favorably, uh, we can say that, you know, what's going to be important in terms of following that that dream, that that thing of getting that, you know, moving into further education in the way that you were asking about, it's going to require a lot of focus at the very least. It's easy to read it as you're locked out, right that it's a hard no. I think it's, it's, it behooves us to read with a certain degree of, of subtlety and be able to look for where the, the archetypes associated with the, the figure might be able to give you an advantage, right? Is it that we're, that you're locked out? Well if it is, can we look for the key? You know, is it that you need to focus down? Is it that you need to draw a magic circle around some things? You know, this kind of thing. Is it? Do we need to appeal to the planet Saturn and its spirits in order that they might give you that encouragement? Saturn rules scholars. It rules old scholars, right? Um, so that, that it's not a million miles away from a useful answer, right? But it, it's also definitely not a full thumbs up. You're golden, kid, right? It, 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 there's, there's things to be done there. And so that's where we started to talk about the things that you could do about
0: that. One of the things that you also looked at was the sixth house and it was Albus in the sixth house. And yeah, so what I love just... about Geomancy is that okay so the court to be perfectly honest not the best court for am I going to get into some place with a lot of money right? but the sixth house did suggest that unlike some charts which would be like doesn't matter what magic you do sorry it's just the way it is the sixth house having Albus in there you were like okay This is not a situation that cannot be influenced. Actually, there is influence that can be made just maybe by other people.
1: One of the things about looking for the part of uh, fortune and the index or the part of spirit is that sometimes there are two cases where they're in the same house. Uh, One is the 12th, which is the house of restriction, and Sam and I are kind of in agreement that in charts where both the part of fortune, where both the, the part of fortune and the, and the index where both the tangible economic or financial thing and the spiritual thing are in the 12th in this house of restrictions, it usually suggests this is it. there's very little wiggle room here for any change. When they're both in the sixth, which is the other, uh, the other example, uh, the other case of the, the part of Fortune and the index being in the same house, I think we're in agreement that there's everything to play for. But it's it's all about what you do, right? And the sixth house, crucially, also rules. It rules, well, back in the day it was slaves. Then it, then that got translated into servants. And now it's like employees and people that you hire. And that definitely includes magical practitioners that you hire to do stuff for you. Uh, and so, again, I try and walk a a fine line in terms of saying, this is what the chart suggests that you should do, uh, and that you should hire a magician to do something like this. So the, the 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 notion is that you should be able to get at not just what to do about a bad chart, but you should also be able to get a sense of how likely it is that that can be ameliorated, right? Because it's not it's you know honestly it's probably not worth. Um, throwing a, a bunch of money and candles and offerings and ritual at a thing that is just fully out of reach but you know of that chart and the way and, and the company that those figures had you know albus is a great figure for study for, for for education for um discernment for analysis for for peaceful amity as well you know that that sense of the white flag gets uh underrated with albus isn't you know Isn't this necessarily this like Vulcan, unemotional, you know, um, nerd who has you know social anxiety? Albus can be someone that's very good at navigating and calming and networking, you know, in its particular way. But to be fair, you have to get Albus nerding out about the things it cares about. Albus is also the 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 upside down of Rubius, that first uh, witness that speaks of um, drunkenness and uh, deceit and vice in various different ways of being, of just being like too passionate about something about, um, and, or about straight up danger, you know, it, it, it's red for blood. It's, it's a figure of bloodshed. Um, and that's, you know, that's in your situation, that's not something we we want to see. Maybe if you were, you know, if you were talking about, uh, getting a really huge back tattoo or something, uh, um, in, in a couple cases, uh, Ruby's uh, uh, surgery, serious surgery, you know, where, you know, there is a small amount of bloodshed in order to cut you open and fix something inside you, then Rubius can be a good figure. But if you're looking for something to deal with, you know, you absolutely don't want to be turning up drunk and punching your boss uh, to, to get into to, to, to further studies in university. So um, finding the opposite of that thing, again, balancing it out with, with Albus. The right witness, that's also not so bad because that that's turning into something, that's turning into the left witness, right? That's, there's something meeting that before we get to the synthesis of the judge. So you could start from a position of – there are plenty of figures that I, I talk about sometimes. is like um, a, a certain court that you say like, okay, you, um, you, know, you got too drunk at a party, but then – uh, on your way home, you met someone really interesting and you formed a friendship that you know they then you know put in a good word for you at their work and you got a job through it so it's not always the worst thing to have Rubius first uh it, it's but it, it it should usually connote a sense unless it's specifically about bloodshed in some way uh it should connote that you've you're kind of changing your ways in some way right um there's also a sense that uh it's about poisons right. Uh, I've had how much can I say here? I had a client ask me about traveling to a country where certain substances were illegal, that are not legal in the states, and was preparing to do a kind of vision quest thing. And I had long suspected that one of the possible uses of rubius, if it's safely contained in the rest of the court, could have this kind of uh, quality of, of entheogens, of uh, or of, of, of the psychedelic, which is, you know, psyche de los, uh, the soul revealing, useful for some kind of like spiritual development, if phrased within the right context. And that's exactly what came up. And so I said, this looks to me like, and I did a bunch of divination to check my divination as well, because uh, it was a new delineation for that kind of particular court. Surprisingly, the medieval handbooks don't have a lot to say about, oh yeah, you should totally go do a bunch of drugs about this.
0: Let's do sort of a lightning round. So I have all the figures of Geomancy. There's 16 figures. And I'm gonna tell you the figure name and then you give me maximum two sentences about what that figure means generally or a pop figure or some sort of, I don't know, place, event, some sort of thing that's very evocative of that figure.
1: Okay, that's okay. so this
0: is gonna be fun. All right. Two sentences tops. Via.
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, extreme change. Tipsy-turny. Uh, the, the moon lighting a single path through the night, but also when the moon goes behind a cloud and suddenly you're in the dark in a big forest and you don't know which way is which.
0: via okay. Coda Draconis.
1: Cauda Draconis Coda. is the dragon's tail. It is endings. It is the firm no, the shut door in your face. It is the south node. It is ketu. It is headless medicine.
0: Mm. Poor.
1: Poor. The boy, explosions, uh, things that a twelve-year-old boy would think are awesome. Boundless energy, uh, great for the start of things, not great at the end of things when you have to stick the landing and stay focused. Uh, running out of running out of, of steam sometimes.
0: Fortuna Minor.
1: Fortuna Minor. The figure of coasting, the figure of just getting by, the figure of easy come, easy go. Uh, Clutching, fixing a thing with duct tape till you get to the finish line.
0: <laughs> Puella.
1: Puella, charm, arts, aesthetics, uh, beauty, uh, being a great host, being a host who adds someone into a room that balances it in a way that you didn't realize it was unbalanced
0: previously. Amissio.
1: Amisio, loss, um, the emo figure, the figure of obsessing over loss, but also still being kind of romantic and sentimental about it.
0: Hmm. Parker.
1: Parker, as we talked about, the prison, but also the cell, but also the magic circle, a figure of focus, of imprisonment, of enforced solitude, but also the potential for uh, a transformation within that, the crucible. Leticia. Laetitia, joy, uh, fleeting joy, joy that must be worked at. Uh, that, must be, that must be kept in the air. It's an arch shape, partly for the wedding arch, the idea of the happiest day of your life, but also I like to think of the ball of joy that keeps being lifted up, also the jawbone that keeps flapping when you're enthusiastic about something. Uh,
0: Caput draconis.
1: Caput draconis, the dragon's head, beginnings, the open door, the open road, uh, a new road, a new opportunity, trying something new, um, uh, head full medicine. Uh, Conjunctio, union or meeting or the handshake, the deal, the pact, Uh, also the two-headed spirit at the crossroads, the devil that um, tricks as well as uh,
0: uh, truces. Acquisitio,
1: gain, uh, Jupiterian generosity, a gain of material goods, but also a gain of skills, of experience, a figure of levelling up. Rubius. Rubius, that scorpionic venom, that bloodshed, that um, potential for deceit, for, for, for worry, for danger.
0: Fortuna Major.
1: Fortuna Major, the, the sun going it alone, the slow, steady build of success and living your best life on your own, uh, with, off, off nothing but your own bootstraps. Albus. Albus, the white, uh, the scholar, the white flag, the white coat, uh, the lab coat, also the the white coat of uh, of potentially isolating oneself, but of uh, a clarity and a peaceful amiability.
0: Mm, Two more, Tristitia.
1: Tristitia, Sorrow, uh, the goth figure, a figure of great experimentation, great for works of down and dirty magic, Uh, Also indicative of cross conditions, much of the time, as well as signifying things that
0: depression. And the last one, populous.
1: Too much of too much, Too many people. Herding cats. You know, when you get out of the restaurant and you've all had a little drink, and you're like, what do we do now? And everyone's like, no one's disagreeing with each other, but they're like, oh yeah, that would be nice to do, but that would be nice to do too. Also, that would be nice to do. Also, look at this shiny thing. Also, did someone see my phone? Populous is both like dispersing, but also being so rammed into an area that you can't move. It's uh, uh, supreme passivity.
0: Yay. So all 16 figures. Dr. Al has just given you the Notes of what they all mean. So you mentioned <laughs> that your Geomancy class, uh, which is a webinar, it's going to be on July 10th.
1: I think they're on Tuesdays. Uh, we need to check that. The first one definitely is 10th. Uh, yeah. So eight hours in all. And we go over... The 16 figures in depth, how to set a chart. A couple of the advanced techniques we talked about, like the way of the points and the um, the, way, uh, the, the part of fortune and the and the index and part of spirit, as it sometimes gets called. A couple of little tricks and techniques. Um, also some, some some fun with it. One of the things I like to do, it's not quite a visualization exercise and it's not quite um, a silly mad lib, but it's somewhere in between where I talk about going on a pub crawl with all of the figures as bars. So poor is obviously like this sports bar. Full of like oh, kind we are. of Oiga young guys, right? Tristisia is obviously this like uh, performance art, experimental goth night. Um, Cowder draconis. The club is has been burned down uh, and is shut. Uh, you know, so giving people a sense of like how to start, see, not just knowing what a figure means when it's written on the page in a chart, but also knowing how to understand and process events in one in one's life uh, in, according to to a geomantic kind of taxonomy.
0: And also, you've written a couple
1: of books, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was lucky enough to turn uh, a bunch of my postgrad research into a book about the history of uh, astrology and magic, and crucially, kind of advance this notion that they're kind of related, uh, which is something that we're seeing in the astrological communities a lot more now. I was very lucky to be in a in a collection on astrological magic, called The Celestial Art, that's coming out through that is out through Three Hands Press. It was edited by the the very capable and handsome uh, Austin Coppock, who's who's, who's a wonderful friend of mine, uh, as well as a a very talented astrologer. I I put out a book uh, through my little imprint that I work with uh, Jesse Hathaway-Diaz at uh, Revelor Press, which is the press run by Dr. Jennifer Zart. um, which was, that book came out in March. It's called The Book of the Magi. It's uh, about the history and the prayers and the spellcraft are, that are associated with the Three Magi of the Nativity story. They formed uh, an incredibly important medieval cult. They were one of the... they made Cologne one of the major centres of the, um, the, the whole kind of pilgrimage tour. It's because uh, Cologne was where the bones of the, the Three Magi were, were kept. And so I look at the history of that cult, I look at it in the Old World, in the new world of, of the Americas, where it became very, very big and, and helped ferment a lot of resistance to colonialism, and I look at a bunch of the spells of where the Three Kings turn up in Primoirs. I, I first got interested in them uh, because uh, when I lived in Bristol, I would, as a poor student and I was travelling around as a professional poet as well, I would get the Megabus a lot, uh, which is, for those not familiar, is, uh, is the economy travel of economy travel. Um, and funnily enough, Bristol has one of the only chapels dedicated to the Three magi outside of Cologne, uh, where their bones are kept still as relics. And so I would get the megabus as I was just about to go on a big journey. Uh, right outside a chapel with their, the three of them holding their, their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so I would like I would you know give them a salute, and gradually I start giving offerings to them to make sure that I could be. You know, and then I would gather dirt from there to using my, my various bits and pieces.
0: And I will definitely link down below to those books. Wow. And Dr. Mm-hmm. Al, thank you so much for talking to me and going through that lightning round of geomantic figures.
1: That was the most fun. I'm always <laughs> up to doing that.
0: Yeah, and I think the way to do that properly is to take shots, you know, like, as you're <laughs> doing it. But unfortunately, I have to go someplace and be an adult in a couple of hours, so I couldn't do that. <sighs> but next time, shots.
1: Definitely next time, shots. Yeah, <laughs> it. <Next time. laughs>
0: Everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Witches and Wine audio experience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can choose between a few membership tiers. They're super affordable and flexible. Your membership helps me continue making videos, podcasts, articles, lots of different things about all the sweet witchy stuff. Links are in the show notes. Also, don't forget to go on iTunes and give this a five-star rating. Each five-star rating helps rank this podcast higher in searches so that as many witches can find and enjoy these episodes as well. Until next time, this is Chawan, signing off.